Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Premier Doug Ford has said Hamilton has been ignored and destroyed by the NDP. Not a very nice thing to say, but does he have a point? Canadian politics post-election, the meetings are going on. What will come out the other end? China has finally agreed to allow Canadian meat products back into their country. Why? Oh, nothing to do with diplomacy or the two Michaels. They just need our pork. And where does all of this leave Huawei's 5G network? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, Doug Ford, uh, Doug Ford, while responding to questions by MPP Donna Skelly, said that Hamilton was ignored and destroyed uh, by NDP socialists. Uh, basically, uh, responding to a question uh, uh, the other day, he said, and here's the, uh, I'll give you the exact quote here. Hamilton has been ignored. It has been run by the NDP, the socialists who destroyed the city for years. Now these companies are flowing into Hamilton because of our great MPP, and that's why they're flowing. Uh, the NDP and liberals destroyed the, uh, the province, ran 300,000 manufacturing jobs out of the province. We created 270,000 new manufacturing jobs. Uh, end of quote, and you know, on it goes, on it goes, on it goes. All right, uh, as as usual, Hamiltonians have their backup about this, or at least some of them do. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Hey, Scott, it's always a pleasure. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, so this was an exchange, uh, and I heard some of it. This was an exchange on uh, at question period, right, at uh, Queen's Park. And, um, you know, question period um, is more uh, entertaining than it is informative sometimes uh, because of the posturing that goes on there. In fact, some uh, people might suggest that it should be called Cirque du Soleil rather than question period uh, because of the shenanigans that go on there. But on the merits, on the merits, um, if, uh, you know, and, and Donna Scully was touting uh, this new company coming in, um, you know, 50 to $100 million uh, uh, investment and, and uh, creating jobs. And so I think that's a great announcement. I think any government would be proud and pleased to have an announcement such as that uh, to present to the legislature. On the other aspects, though, <clears throat> the other aspects, which is that, that the provincial government has ignored uh, Hamilton, uh, that just isn't the case. It just the facts do not bear that out. I think you will see historic investment in infrastructure, especially, even if you, if you set aside the $1 billion promised for the LRT. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's controversial, but set aside the controversy. It is an investment, yeah. a million bucks. And that's just one. Uh, the, the hospital bills that have been done, the new schools that uh, uh, have been uh, uh, built in, in the city of Hamilton. I mean, go down the list. I mean, you, you know, let, let, let's let's uh, let's keep this all in perspective, Larry. And and yeah. let me start by saying I, I don't think he should have said this, but I don't right. think he's that far off the mark. I don't think this was an opportunity to slag Hamilton, although that's exactly what it's turned out for him. And those are communication yeah. issues that he and his party have to work out. But yeah. I've had many chats in circles uh, in this city since the time I've been here, and many have said to me, if you want to get things done you have to have a representative who is actually forming government and that, oh, and that being on a provincial level and a federal level and, yes. and and for the longest time that was not the case now again the LRT pervert example of Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals bringing that money to Hamilton uh, largely in an attempt to, f- to, to fend off the NDP and keep taking the Liberal Party farther and farther to the left but no yeah. th- those statements just don't bear fruit however I, I again I, I think we got our backs up on this Wait a sec, you're hammering the the city here. And I think the point that he's trying to make is something that is spoken in many circles, and that is if you want representation, you gotta represent people who are gonna form government. Okay, so so that's a whole different discussion, however, right? And I've uh, I've articulated that in the past that that you know I have I think you and I have had this discussion we, in the we past. We have, we have, and, and we both uh, agreed that if you really want a seat at the table uh, then you've got to be in the governing party, whatever that stripe happens to be. And right now it happens to be the Conservatives provincially 
And we're lucky to have a member who is at the table, um, you know, pulling for her city. Uh, and before that, uh, you know, Ted McPeakin did the same thing for the yep. uh, for the liberals. Uh, unfortunately, though, drowned out by the various and many NDP members that are elected. And we have to respect people's choices. I mean, people go mm-hmm. to the ballot box and they decide on whom they want uh, to represent them. And if they choose orange, they choose orange. If they choose red, they choose red. If they choose blue, they choose blue. So we have to live with that. But the consequences of that uh, are that we don't have uh, the decision makers necessarily pulling for our side. We have people in the opposition who are pushing the decision makers, and maybe that helps, but often it doesn't. And there was a moment of clarity at the federal debates, and which I was, um, you know, not a participant in the debates, but we had, uh, you know, some some analysis uh, duties. Uh, and I'm talking about the federal election. There was a moment of blunt honesty by Scott Duval when he was asked that question: "What have you done for us over the last term of uh, the federal government?" And he said, "Well, look, I have nothing because I'm not part of the government." I think he walked that back a little bit, but that was as blunt as you're going to get a politician and as honest as you're going to get a politician to be. And uh, and that's a, a, you know, a, a totally different discussion. But if you look at the objective facts as to whether the federal or provincial governments of any stripe, and you can go back to Mr. Harper when he was prime minister, we got things in Hamilton as well. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't have very many conservatives then. But if you look at the liberal record, and you know they were in power for 15 years before Mr. Ford came uh, here, uh, Hamilton received a lot. In fact, some people claim that it was disproportionate to the electoral representation that we had for that same party. So I, I think Ford was just being, uh, you know, he was being very political uh, in trying to, yeah. you know, get at Andrea Horvath because she's the leader. She's from Hamilton. She's NDP. And he has a predisposition, I think, to dislike uh, the left a lot. He's talked about that before. Uh, I don't know how productive that is. And it certainly runs counter to his avowed new leaf that he's trying to um, uh, turn over, which is to be more collaborative, more cooperative. <laughs> That's the first that. thing I thought of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So much for that. Yeah, so much for that. I mean, you know, you get, but it's a game question period, which is a bit yeah. of a hothouse. Yeah. Everybody's attacking you, and so your hackles get up, and you try to, you know, the best uh, defense is an offense, and I think that's what we saw an example of. I'm not that offended by it. I mean, it's not true. It it can be argued against. Uh, it needs to be seen in that context, uh, but so be it. I mean, uh, as long as they keep investing in the city, you know, have your own opinions. Uh, that being said, uh, can Hamilton say that we at least have now some repre- representation from all three parties, and, and, and that can only help? Absolutely. Um, you know, it would be better if Donna Skelly were in cabinet, uh, because then you're at yeah. the decision-making table, and maybe that'll happen. I, I would certainly encourage that. I mean, I remember when I was mayor, and um, uh, we had uh, Mr. Harper was just elected, um, and I wrote uh, letters uh, suggesting that uh, David Sweet should have been put into the cabinet federally uh, because Hamilton traditionally had had uh, lots of strong federal representation, even going back to Mr. Mulroney, Shirley Martin, he appointed, uh, who was a, um, a, a conservative member from the east part of the, of the city. The Hamilton always had somebody at the table who was um, in cabinet. Uh, if they elected, you know, representation. Uh, Harper broke that pattern. He did not have anybody from Hamilton. And, and Hamilton is a substantial city. It's one of Canada's biggest cities. It's a, It was a, a, an economic engine to some extent for the manufacturing sector. We know what's happened there. But Hamilton deserves that. And so provincially, I think we deserve that as well. And Donna is a well-spoken person. You can agree with her politics or not. That's a whole different story. But she is from Hamilton, and it would be great for the city if we had somebody at the cabinet table from the city as well. What about uh, everyone's reaction to this? Well, I've seen some of the um, – I haven't looked carefully at, at everything on, on Twitter, but I've seen some of it. And uh, I noticed that uh, Keenan Loomis, for example, as, uh, as the uh, head of, uh, of uh, our Chamber of Commerce points out that, you know, we're on fire economically. We have uh, – a low unemployment rate. We have lots of investment. 
City Hamilton puts out statistics that talk about $2 billion um, building investment in the city every year for the last number of years. Uh, uh, Jason Thorne, I think we're over $1 billion. It used to be $1 billion. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're approaching much higher than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Thorne, the head of economic development and planning for the city, uh, uh, boasts, and I think rightly so, in, not, not in, a, in an arrogant way, but in a these are the facts kind of way of uh, the economic activities in the city of Hamilton. I don't think and, anybody can deny the no, success so of Hamilton and the we... fact that Hamilton has turned the corner. And, and again, right. I, you know, I'm not sure that was the point here. And I no, think the... that's the way it's been interpreted. And again, yeah. I'm, I'm not speaking for the for the premier in any way. Um, but but again, I, I think, you know, pointing to the obvious to me, that's that's not the answer here. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, the point that someone is making here is if you don't have representation at the table, you're not going to be represented. Now, right. of course, that doesn't mean that all other governments are going to ignore you. As you said, Hamilton's a, a major city. Of course, all stripes are going to pay attention to Hamilton in some way. But again, like you said, is your voice being heard? And I think yeah. that's the message here. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure the problem of Ontario, uh, the premier of the province of Ontario, no matter what the political stripe, is well aware of this recent success of Hamilton. Yes. Well, it, it, however, however, it, it, however, it, 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 as getting back to the first point when we started uh, that you brought up earlier, and that being uh, started the week off, going to be less divisive, divisive going to be unifying. What can this party learn from this moving forward? Well. So I was at a at a function last night uh, in Toronto. In fact, uh, the premier was there, um, and the function in Toronto uh, was uh, the Cardinals' dinner. This is Cardinal Collins. Uh, you know, there mm-hmm. were sixteen hundred people raising money for the Cardinals. That, that then uh, gives that money to thirty-eight charities in the Toronto area. Uh, much like our bishop here in Hamilton does a bishop's dinner, and he turns the money that uh, every year he makes over to some worthwhile charities here. The premier was there, and a number of municipal politicians were there as well, including uh, the mayor of Markham, who spoke. And the mayor of Markham took the opportunity to talk about two of his pet projects that he wants the premier to pay attention to. And one is an arena, and the second, I think, is a subway. Uh, and he said that, uh, you know, he said that uh, uh, he voiced that publicly in front of 1,600 people. Everybody chuckled because he was very funny in the way he presented it. Mm-hmm. But his point was clear. And then when the premier got up to speak, he said, essentially, he said, look, this is what he's asking for his two favorite projects. And everybody asks for something. Everybody asks for something. Yeah. Who gets, though? Who gets? And it's a political decision at the end of the day is who is most insistent. And those who can be most insistent are those that are closest to the decision makers. So if you're the premier, if you're his cabinet, if you are some of the other representatives that support cabinet ministers, I mean, those are all the decision makers. And so the message for us all really should be, look, let's be smart as Hamiltonians and let's make sure that we don't just put all our eggs in one political basket, but we spread it around so that whoever wins, we win. That's exact. uh, Very well said. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, because you don't know from day to day, year to year, what direction this is going to go in. And you're selling a city no matter who is in political power. Uh, You know, and and that is that is so accurate. Uh, And, you know, we we just uh, however, history for the city has not been thus. And 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 the premier talking about socialists, I mean, you know, give me a break. Political parties in this country are so close together. Yes, some are center-left, some are center-right, some are in the middle. But their projects are, are at the end of the day, fairly, fairly close together. And so consequently, uh, even if we elect somebody on the left, uh, they're not going to stray too far from the mainstream. They're not, you know, we're not talking about radical individuals yeah. in the city. Although... If you look at Hamilton Council, it certainly is a center-left uh, council. Mm-hmm. If you look at who we represent, uh, who, who we elect um, uh, provincially, uh, certainly uh, center-left uh, individuals, and even federally. I mean, we split, um, you know, the, the conservatives barely retained one seat, and the center and the center-left took four of the five. 
So we're that kind of a community, and, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Larry Diani has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, lots to talk about. A meeting taking place in Ottawa today over the leadership with his caucus, uh, Andrew Scheer, heading that one up. Also, uh, a new Nanos poll says conservatives are li- and liberals are still neck and neck, uh, and even with the uh, conservatives showing a slight lead. So things have not changed post-election. You might remember this time last election, the uh, the Liberals were enjoying a honeymoon, and in fact, their numbers went up after the election. To talk about all of that, let's bring in Peter Wollstonecroft, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. All right. Andrew Scheer meets, uh, meets with caucus today, first time since election, uh, since the election. What's the mood of that meeting going to be like? Uh, tenuous, I would think, though, you know, a longtime observer some time ago, Dalton Camp, said, you know, when the Tory party uh, meets in conference, uh, they circle the wagons and fire inwards. <laughs> and uh, I think there's uh, hints of that, intimations of that. Everybody's looking to see what other people are doing and, and thinking. But there's got to be a lot of uh, searching unhappiness, I'll put it that way, about um, what happened in the election, because as Peter McKay now famously put it, uh, we had a breakaway, we had an open net, and we missed. Uh, uh, is that accurate in your in your mind? Well, some, I, may I, say, some may say he didn't get a strong pass. <laughs> you know, uh, yes, somebody did say that. Uh, should uh, we, should, yeah, but, should but he, he, had be, a, he go had ahead. A, it, was, it was clear sailing from the blue line and nobody around him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, to my mind, uh, Adam Shear, uh, Andrew Shear does not present well, uh, either when he's speaking or when he's on television. And he kind of drains energy from you rather than imparts energy. And, uh, and he was stumbling. And most importantly, uh, I, there was nothing on the climate change issue. Basically, they seem to be saying is, we're going to help you out with your insulation problem. And and Canadians have many things on their minds, but Canadians on the whole, particularly younger people, uh, were very much taken with the climate change issue. And so the Conservatives didn't speak to that. And uh, that was the big holdback. And I think the candidates, uh, the ones I've heard being interviewed, uh, said they heard that at the door and they had very little to offer. Uh, you know, their fallback is, well, we didn't communicate well what we had. Well, I don't think the problem was the communication. I think it was what they had. Hmm. So should they be happy with the results that they have because they did improve, or should they be upset that they didn't get more? Oh, glass half full, glass half empty. And that's pretty much how the party feels. It looks pretty much split on whether he should step down or not. Well, this is what I would say to to the Conservatives. What did Andrew Scheer do to grow the potential base of the party. What he did, to answer my question, was maintain the base of the party, and those people came out to to vote, and it showed up in the way that it did. Uh, But did he really broaden the appeal of the party? Uh, There's an analyst by the name of uh, Fournier, he comes out of Quebec in in McLean's, uh, listed constituencies by population density. The most the 60th most dense constituencies in Canada all voted non-conservative. So that tells you what we know by looking at the map, which is that urban Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, did not elect one conservative MP. And the suburbs around those places did not vote conservative for the most part. There's two or three around uh, Toronto, a couple around Vancouver, nothing around Montreal. So that's a disaster if, if, the people where the people are, there are no conservatives elected. The Americans yeah. have a saying: "You go hunting where the ducks are." <laughs> yeah. So, so all due respect to the good people of Muskoka, the conservatives went hunting in Muskoka, not in Mississauga. Hmm. How about that for a slogan? That is good. Uh, how can uh, well, in your mind, I, I'm guessing the the, the answer is obvious here. So, can he do anything to win those urban areas over between now and the next election? Is that possible, or is are, is people's perception cast in stone here? Well, 
when he became leader of the party, uh, my view was that he was not defined. He had an opportunity to define himself, and his opponents had an opportunity to define him. I think his opponents have won that battle, and it's very yeah. busy, very difficult to transform your image. And 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 I think what we saw is the way he thinks and the way he goes at issues and the way he approaches matters. And so, you know, to, to put it bluntly, you know, when when the when the debates are on, I don't watch them. I listen to them. I go to one room hmm. and listen. And his energy does not attract. His voice does not yeah. attract interest. Yeah. It, it's it's very regular, and then when I listen to his words, more often than not, he he lapses into a very brittle partisanship. Well, my, my dealings with young people is that they are not interested in partisan matters. No. Those kinds of things do not matter. If you want to watch partisan stuff, well, then you'll watch wrestling on TV. Mm-hmm. That's what you want. You know, people mm-hmm. yelling at their, their camp versus another camp. They're not interested in that. If they're interested in politics, they have a lot of policy questions, and, and, and predominantly they're concerned about climate change and what's going to happen. Now, I think we have some big issues in this country. I don't, don't cheat this lightly. I think we have some very serious issues coming out of the election. But the conservatives did not speak to the basic concerns of a large fraction of our population. Can and or has or will Andrew Shear? Can he learn something from this last election? Well, people do learn, and, and uh, that's that's possible. But he doesn't have that much time. Uh, and especially considering it's a minority government. Well, no, but the, the party has a convention yeah. in April. And the question of the leadership will be there. If right. It's not, you know, so the he won't even make it that far. Yeah, I hear you saying that. Yeah. The, the party in, in caucus may decide to go in another direction, but right. the party in convention um, will have to deal with this issue. And the, and the party will be divided, as always is, between leader supporters and, uh, and, and opponents. Um, the strong areas of the conservative party including a, a large fraction of the newly elected MPs, and that, that will be in his, his favor, will want to keep Andrew Scheer as, as the leader. But the convention is not a one-member, one-vote system. So it, what it is, in fact, is delegates from each of the 338 electoral districts. So if you are in Mississauga, as opposed to Muskoka, you're going to be asking the question, what do we need by way of a leader and a program, a, uh, a platform that will appeal to people where I live. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, they'll be asking the question, is Andrew Scheer the person to do that? And uh, I would suspect a lot of people at least will ask that question. And what their answer will be, I have no idea. If it were just a simple one member, one vote, like all the members vote online, uh, Andrew Scheer would be reelected. But there will be a lot of people, members of the party in Quebec, will be saying, this isn't going to work. A lot of people in Ontario, southern Ontario, are going to say this is not going to work. A lot of people, perhaps even in the Atlantic Canada, would say, we didn't do very well and we should have. So mm. there you go. I think that that's a big test for him, and it's, how should I, how should I put it, imbued with uncertainty. Uh, when he meets with caucus today, what's the objective? Where do they start here? Where, where do they go? Well, I think I think... We we don't know what happens in these meetings, and, and people though they'll, they'll come out and profess loyalty, and even though they've just stabbed yeah. the leader in the back. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I think at some point, some pointed at some pointed questions will be asked, and he has to deftly handle those questions, and 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 convince people that that he can present himself in a strong energetic way. Will this so come I, I, down will this come down to something as simple as somebody's asking him, "Are you going to march in a pride parade?" and if he says no, you're out. Because that's not going to well, fly in it, urban Canada. Some, some people may say that. I mean, is that uh, not and, the simple litmus, te- uh, litmus well, test may, here? Well, it might be. And, and, and a lot of people coming from urban Canada would say it's not a matter of your personal beliefs. It's a question that a large fraction of our population believes in pride parades. No, I mean, I've, I have some of my friends who don't like them, and I say to them, well, you know what, they have served a very important purpose, and many Canadians like them, and if you want to lead a party that aspires to represent Canadians, then you better be where the Canadians are. I go back to, you go hunting where the ducks are. 
What do conservatives have to do to win millennials? What do they have to do to change their image? Well, I, I think you, you have to find a way to, to assuage people's fears about the future. Uh, I have a nine-year-old grandson, and he wants to talk to me about the fact that the world will not be habitable in his lifetime. He's nine years old. Now, he gets those ideas from many, many places. Mm-hmm. People are worried about that. Will we be able to live on this planet 30 or 40 years from now? And I reassure him. I said, I, you know, I think we'll still be here. Yeah. I won't be, but you'll be here. Mm-hmm. And I hope you have a good time. But it's out there. And so you have to speak to people's concerns. You also have to speak to people's aspirations. What do you think is our ideal society? Uh, Justin Trudeau was much better at that in 2015. He didn't do a very good job in 2019 because he had a lot of luggage, a lot of barnacles on, on, on the side of his ship. But did, So the question I would say to, you, to conservatives who are listening to this, what did Andrew Scheer do that would lead you to understand his aspirations for a better society? Mm. And you, for, for millennials, my reading of them, that's on their mind. And, and, you know, when we had the blackface, brownface business, Andrew Scheer went into a very brittle partisanship mode, and he didn't talk about how we all need to learn about the things we've done in the past and what we have to do better in the future, which would have been an aspirational kind of approach. He didn't do that. He just said, we always knew Mr. Trudeau was a hypocrite. Now we know for sure. Uh, does he have to go into that meeting with Andrew Shear? Does Andrew Shear have to go into that meeting with his uh, his idea, his his ideals, his opinions changed, or does he have to convince I, I think, the rest, or does have he have to, to convince the others that that he's right? Well, it's very hard to it's hard to convince people that he's right when people don't think you're right. Yeah, uh, I learned that a long time ago. I always wanted to take people into the into the into the closet and beat them up and say you got to think like I do. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. Uh, I take people as they are and say, okay, let's talk about this. He has to say, we made some mistakes. I take responsibility. Uh, we we did things we should not have. I take responsibility. I've learned a profound lesson about the way we have to be as a political party. We can't be satisfied with getting 35% of the vote. We have to do much more than that. And I will commit myself to finding ways uh, and, and the language and the policies that will speak to the people who live in urban Canada. There's no use doing very well in Muskoka or southern Saskatchewan or southern Alberta. I mean, some of, the Alberta, some, some of those rural writings in Alberta and Saskatchewan, conservatives are getting 50,000 votes, and their opponents were getting 4,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that's lovely. But so what? All due respect to my cousins and nieces and nephews who live there. It's a question of, are you competitive in urban Canada? We are a very urbanized society, despite the size of this country, and that's where the ducks are. Uh, we certainly uh, endured lots of polling during the election campaign. Uh, uh, most of us had lots of access to that. Uh, now polling post-election shows virtually the same sort of trending that we saw going into the election with a virtual dead heat and a slight, uh, a slight uh, advantage going to the conservatives. Uh, go back to last election, this time last election, post-election, uh, we, all, we actually saw uh, liberal numbers increase, and there was this massive honeymoon period for the prime minister. Uh, what do you say about the numbers still being so close, and even post-election, not much reaction? Well, I think people are, are, are put that aside. Uh, uh, what, how, what did the People's Party of Canada get in the poll? I didn't see any number. You know, they took six seats, maybe seven seats away from the Conservatives, if you add up their vote and the Conservative vote. Uh, I, I, I think that it's a waiting game, and, and the, the Conservatives have a well-entrenched base in this country, about 33 35%, produces a lot of money by way of contributions. They're well-organized across the country. They're able to uh, easily mount candidates across the country, even in areas where they're not likely to do well. Uh, they have all the infrastructure, uh, and they have a group of people who are going to vote conservative, more or less regardless of what happens 
on the political scene. So there it is. That's what the, that's what the conservatives are showing. There were a lot of people who voted liberal uh, this time, uh, somewhat to my surprise, uh, strategically. Uh, I think there's evidence to that effect. And talking yeah. to people, anecdotally, people said, yeah, I voted liberal strategically because I didn't want to have a conservative elected. Uh, I think there was some of that. And so when the election is over, people are going back to where they were. So the liberals don't go up. Uh, perhaps the other parties go up, Greens and the NDP. So uh, who do you think is best to take this party to the next stage, to the next level? <laughs> well, I think I, obviously Peter McKay did not say what he said without thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's so, his unofficial entrance into the leadership yeah. race, now, is it not? No, he's already been a leader of the progressive conservatives. And there are a lot of people who hold it against them that he became leader of the party on a promise and broke the promise. However, uh, he is a quote-unquote modern conservative, a moderate conservative. Uh, he speaks the language of uh, contemporary Canadians living in large urban areas. Are there other people? I don't know. Uh, and I have various names, but I'm not going to mention any. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised uh, uh, that there's somebody in Quebec uh, who who comes out of uh, non-Montreal area, who is perfectly bilingual, uh, who understands Quebec nationalism and feels comfortable talking about that. Andrew Scheer clearly does not. And somebody who comes, because he comes from outside of Montreal, can speak to the concerns of rural Canada. And we, and we have so many Canadians. We have Western Canada that's angry. Quebec has got its frustrations. We also have a big divide between metropolitan Canada and small-town rural Canada. And and the Conservative Party comes out of small-town rural Canada. It has to find a leader who can speak to those people and their concerns, but it can also uh, broaden the base. And, and to put it in, in a limited way, 40 to 45 percent of Canadians have to be prepared to vote for the Conservative Party. Right now, it's barely 40%. Is Ron Ambrose in that mix? What about a female? Absolutely. Uh, and I, offhand, I don't know how bilingual she is. I think you have to be bilingual. Uh, I think it would be a disaster if you had a unilingual French, uh, French uh, Canadian right. uh, Conservative leader. Because, uh, as Brian Maroney said a long time ago in the 1980s when he was running, you've got to be able to speak to one-third of the country, and you just can't mm. write them off. And, and they will not vote for somebody who's not bilingual. They might not vote for you if you are bilingual, but they won't vote for you if yeah. you're unilingual. Uh, do the conservatives realize that there is a gaping hole in the middle, that, uh, that right in the center is where the gap is right now? Well, if they don't, then what are they reading, and what maps are they looking at, and... And are they not talking to volunteers and the party? I mean, people who are much involved. There are people who spend all their time doing party work, and they know how difficult it is. They know there's a big, big hole in urban Canada. And and you look at the map. You can do the you do the Donald Trump thing. Say, oh, look at the whole country's red. No, it's not because there's little blue dots. Well, that happens to be New York City. That happens yeah. to be Los Angeles. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's some. There is some uh, liberal in the Canadian context. There's a lot of red, some red spots on the map. However, there's millions of people living on those red spots. Peter Wollstonecroft has been with us, associate professor, University of Waterloo. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you, you certainly know what has been going on with our ongoing uh, tenuous relations with uh, China. You know, for the last couple of decades, everybody was pretty much holding uh, up China as uh, the golden goose. And everybody wanted a piece of China. Everybody was bending down, uh, kissing their rear ends, trying to get uh, some sort of deal with China. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, the Huawei CFO was detained on an international extradition warrant for the United States, something that we or our allies would do for us in any situation like this. And all of a sudden, uh, the two Michaels are taken off the street and uh, are now being held hostage in China. Uh, from there, it continued the bullying and so on and so forth. And China, uh, all of a sudden, it appears like we have seen the true colors of what it's like when a country is propped up by the Communist Party of China. 
And then, of course, it, it bled into all sorts of trade issues, uh, again, with the Huawei CFO and, and, and them trying to uh, bring their 5G network to North America, uh, so on and so forth, of, w- of which people, and, and now suspicion is even growing greater with the ties with all companies in China to the Communist Party uh, that that people have become all of a sudden extremely suspicious about this uh, this whole situation and the whole relationship. And all of a sudden this relationship that was uh, comfy cozy has now become extremely strained. Uh, we also see that with the demonstrations and what's been happening in Hong Kong. Uh, when Hong Kong was handed over back to the Chinese out of British rule uh, after being under British control for a hundred years, um, many thought, many hoped that China would see the success of Hong Kong and what it has become and open up its markets as we had seen in the past, and become more like Hong Kong. And what, in fact, has happened is uh, China is putting a a chokehold slowly around Hong Kong and trying to make Hong Kong more like China instead of the other way around. Uh, Where has that left us? That has left us uh, with very strained relations with China. As a result of that, uh, we've seen... uh, the canola industry be hit. We've seen uh, Canada's beef and pork market uh, be hit, uh, specifically in regard to meats. Uh, they have said, that being China, that there's reason to believe that there's some sort of contaminants or or inspections uh, weren't upheld, and use that as an excuse not to not to take Canadian meat exports, both beef and pork. Uh, and it turns out that, of course, China, major, major uh, buyers of Canadian product, specifically pork. And now it has all, all of a sudden been announced that China has agreed to allow Canadian meat products back into their country, ending a five-month suspension. China halted the importation of Canadian beef and pork back in June, saying some Canadian meat had tested positive for an additive that had been banned in China and was sent over with uh, forged inspection certificates. Uh, Forged inspection certificates from this country. Uh, Now it looks like that is all come to an end. China is one of Canada's largest export markets for pork and beef. More than $500 million worth of Canadian pork and nearly $100 million worth of Canadian beef was sent to China in 2018, representing the second and fifth largest markets, uh, respectively, for those meats. Uh, The two countries obviously have been embroiled in in a diplomatic uh, uh, dispute for over a year involving uh, the Huawei CFO. Arrested in Vancouver last December. And then, of course, two Canadians, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, were detained in China days later and remain in custody there. And we've heard very little from them, very little about them, other than they are being held in conditions a lot more severe, a lot more uncomfortable than the Huawei CFO is being held in Canada. Uh, basically uh, on bail, out on bail, wearing a bracelet, an anklet bracelet, and being allowed to live in her million-dollar mansion, multi-million-dollar mansion. Well, the two Michaels are sitting in a cell, are sitting in cells with the lights on 24-7. Does anything seem right there? Uh, So clearly, uh, tension between the two countries, and now it's been announced that... uh, China is opening up the floodgates, going to let Canadian meat back in. Has anything happened? No, not really. Other than China's running out of pork. They're running out of product. Yeah, because they've got a swine fever epidemic breaking out there. China also banned Canadian canola shipments back in March, claiming they did not meet quality standards. And, you know, the quality standards have always been better in China, have they not? Uh, There has been no suggestion that China's position on canola will undergo a similar reversal anytime soon. Both the Canadian and the Chinese governments have claimed that their actions have been legitimate, while the others is unlawful. But China is the world's largest pork producer. uh, Its herds have been devastated by an outbreak of African swine fever. 
Approximately 1.2 million Chinese pigs have been killed since August of 2018 in, a, in an attempt to control the disease and contain the disease. Obviously, that decline in supply has caused the price of pork in China to nearly double over the past year. They've obvi- and, and trying to find exports from other parts of the world, including Europe and Brazil. So uh, I guess it's good that we now have ambassadors in place and that people are now talking about this. But shouldn't we be talking about the two Michaels as well as the pork? And is there no way we can use the pork as leverage for the two Michaels? Is that possible? Or even get some canola shipped over there? So we're not sure where this is going to go at this point, um, but it would appear it's good news for Canadian farmers as the gates again will now open to China and allow them to sell their product there. But not because of anything diplomatic, not because of any uh, uh, peacemaking, but because they just need the product. Simple as that. They just need the product. So is there any leverage room here for us? Let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, lead researcher, professor at Dalhousie University, and on the line with us now. Uh, Sylvain, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, not a problem. Why is this happening now? Are you surprised? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I was surprised in June when they decided to uh, <laughs> to embargo our pork and beef. Uh, it was devastating. It's been tough for, for our livestock industry. And so I'm actually talking to you from Ottawa today, and uh, I'm at the Canada 2020 Summit, and this summit is about how to brand Canada abroad and so there's, uh, as an agri-food superpower, and so uh, the livestock folks that are here in Ottawa are literally having a party. It's great news for them. Uh, there, there is collateral damage, though, to be recognized, and, and the big one, beyond the numbers, because I know that the uh, KME Council has suggested that the losses are exceed $300 million, I would say beyond that, their reputation, the Canada's reputation has been affected uh, as, a, as a trading nation. Uh, because it, it, it involved China, China attracts a lot of attention. Uh, so we're back in the game. China wants our bacon, which is great, but we're going to have to really massage that relationship moving forward. And, uh, and so we know that the Americans are, are after a trade deal with China. But uh, my, my, my take on this is pretty simple. We should do the same and, and start talking about what we can do for China and with China. Uh, any reasons given for this? Obviously, there was thoughts or, or uh, concern of contamination, which obviously doesn't help our product on the world market. Uh, it appears that was bogus. Is that the case? Uh, what is the reason for them wanting all of a sudden this product now? other than they got a, uh, a swine fever epidemic and they need the product? Well, so it, it, it's, it's a good question. Uh, I, funny enough, actually, I spoke to two trade experts here in Ottawa this morning about this, and, uh, and uh, I did ask, so is this a bogus claim? Or, or were, were certificates uh, falsified? And I got two different answers. So I honestly uh, believe personally that we were dealing with geopolitics uh, simply, uh, and uh, it is uh, somewhat related to what happened in December in Vancouver when we have said Meng Wanzhou, Vice President of Huawei, uh, and since then uh, things have gone south with China. We saw with canola and grains, but that still hasn't been resolved, uh, although we there's been some reports that we're actually using um, some sort of a backdoor to get to China through the Arab Emirates. And so we are selling canola, I guess, but probably at a discount. But with livestock, with this message today, I mean, sincerely, I, I actually don't think that China can go on without Canadian pork and beef. They actually need our product. So this became a food security issue domestically. So they, they needed to do something. Uh, but the one question I have, to the government of Canada is that why the hell it took nine months to appoint an ambassador. Dominic Barton uh, clearly had something to do with what happened uh, yesterday. 
uh, it does help when you have an ambassador in China, but we didn't have one for many, many, many yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess we can't look back now. Uh, it is, um, hmm. yeah, I mean, what can you do about that? I mean, uh, time lost, I guess. But at the end of the day, if this is a food security issue for China, is there any leverage here for Canada? In other words, well, it's nice that you've made up this whatever and, 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 and now you've decided to open up the floodgates, but hey, can you take some canola with you on the way? <laughs> yeah, well, like, is, seriously, exactly. is, there any, is there any room for leverage here? Uh, I, I think, I mean, I, there are probably discussions going on right now uh, about this because, uh, of course, uh, China has been... Uh, self-sufficient uh, on, on pork for, for quite some time, although what has been happening in recent months is, is this swine fever affecting uh, their, uh, their piglets and, and, and herd. And so that's why numbers are down. They need our pork uh, more so than ever. Uh, but and really, that that's, have, the o- that's the only thing that's changed here, isn't it, Sylvan, is that they need the product now. Oh, they absolutely need the product. And uh, but to actually maintain the herd they have, they need feed, and that's why yeah. they need our canola. Hmm. And uh, and canola is they started with canola back in 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 March simply because it was so symbolic, so powerful to embargo uh, what is likely the most iconic Canadian crop out there, canola, engineered, uh, produced, uh, and designed in Canada. And that's why they started with canola. And I honestly think that that's the big one they need to resolve as soon as possible. How does this deal with pork and beef change the other discussions, whether it's uh, the discussions on canola, whether it's the discussion on Huawei, whether it's the discussion about the two Michaels still detained there? <laughs> there's, there's lots going on. I only stick to food, so but I do. I would recognize that the China situation is absolutely complicated for sure. And if you add the Americans uh, into the fold, it gets even worse. And and we are in an election year right now in America, so a lot of things can happen. I would say the next 12 months until we get to the American election, there is a window. There is an opportunity for Canadian diplomats to you know sit down and have great constructive conversations with the Chinese authorities, uh, because at some point, uh, we're going to have to think about uh, the long game. And, and, and what we've seen in 2019 are knee-jerk reactions, uh, uh, frustrations, and, and, that, and in the end, everyone pays. And that, that, that really doesn't help anybody. Uh, Ken, should government be using this, and, and, you know, we chuckled at first, but should government be using this as leverage, or are we so at China's mercy, we're just happy they're taking anything from us? <laughs> Do the math. 1.4 there you go. billion yeah. against 37 million. Yeah. Just do the math. I mean, seriously. And, and they're the second uh, largest economy in the world, and they are about to become the largest economy in the world. And so I would say I don't think we're at an advantage. Uh, what is helping our situation, though, are different trade deals we sign with Europe, uh, with Asia as well, uh, which doesn't include China. Uh, if we can ratify uh, the United States, Mexico, Canada, Canadian trade deal at some point, uh, it really helps when you become that hub, that platform between several markets. Uh, Europe was after us, not because of us. They were after us because of, of the Americans. Let's, let's be honest. It's actually much easier to deal with Canadians than, than it is to deal with Americans. That's the advantage we have. And right now, because doors are open again with China and, and with America, they actually are slapping tariffs on, on Chinese commodities and vice versa. We actually do have an advantage right now without doing anything. So hmm. let's celebrate this, take advantage of it, but also start negotiations for a good, sound trade deal with China. Uh, any any chance this could happen again? Is could they could this be another knee jerk reaction? Could they use this again in the future? Any reason to believe that they may not, or that they may? Uh, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's a guarantee. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the embargo is back on tomorrow uh, for one reason or another. You never know. It's, it's getting more complicated. 
I thought climate change was actually bad enough to manage, but uh, geopolitics are amazingly unpredictable, and uh, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and it's uh, it's getting worse every single year. Uh, the Trump era, of course, is is quite uh, unique. I'll admit. Uh, but uh, I think we need to acknowledge that the, the Chinese influence around the world is becoming more and more real, and we need to we need a piece of the action. As a trading partner with China, we're not even in the top twenty right now, mm. and we need to get there. When does, as far as uh, meat products, when does when does it start to flow again? How long will it take for uh, farmers to feel this? So uh, it's a good question. So th- th- there's two different answers to that uh, to that one question. So with hogs, obviously, production cycle is three four months. Uh, I assume that a lot of hog producers out there edged against what was going on with China. So they may actually inventories are 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 lower now. So we have less products to sell. So to ramp up inventories, it's going to take some time. With cattle, it's less critical because this situation only lasted a few months. And cat, the, 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 the production cycle for cattle is, is almost two years. Um, but <laughs> domestically, uh, you should expect bacon to go up in price, unfortunately, by February mm, because shortage. there's less inventory for us, mm. too. And so we're going to probably have to pay more for those uh, pork chops and, and and bacon by, I would say, mid-February. And for cattle, uh, inventories are also low, so we are expecting a bit of a bump uh, by the time we get to uh, barbecue, season, barbecue season next year in 2020. If you are in the canola industry, are you? do you feel positive about this? Uh, no. <laughs> really, eh? Like you're not thinking one's going to jerk the other loose? I, I don't think so. Uh, they're separate issues, I, I, I would say. And and, they, and, and obviously and, China needs more pork than they need canola right now. That's yeah, a finished product for them. Uh, canola is more work. Uh, and uh, and frankly, with the swine fever, they just don't know how many animals they'll, they'll have to feed. And so, yeah. I would how much of a part issue. does that play in all of this as well, Sylvan? The fact that if they're killing 1.2 million pigs and they're trying to, to literally cleanse their they're heard from a from a from a nation standpoint they're not going to need the feed right now yeah well the 1.2 million is what we know yeah i don't think it's an accurate number uh a lot of people think it's way more than that because this thing is way contagious like you re- and they have no biosecurity measures there i i've been to china several times and i i'm very skeptical to the 1.1 1.2 million that's why they're desperate to get our products there hmm Sylvain Charlebois has been with us, lead researcher and professor at Dalhousie University. China has agreed to allow Canadian meat products back into the country, ending a five-month ban. Sylvain, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking about China. Of course, uh, just announced yesterday that they are opening up the gates and now will allow uh, Canadian meat products, uh, beef products and pork products back into China. Great news for Canadian farmers. Going to talk about that and uh, the Huawei decision and 5G moving forward. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. He is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you, Scott. Uh, first, let's start with uh, the ban that was just lifted in China yesterday in regard to Canadian beef and pork products. Are you surprised by this? Is this about diplomacy or just they need pork? Well, you know, I I, I think it's really about the pork. Um, after all, they haven't suggested anything to do with the uh, ban on the canola seeds exports to China, which is also an enormous uh, agricultural commodity export to that uh, terrific market. And the bottom line is that with the African swine flu, 40% of China's pork production has been affected. The the pigs are sick. And a lot of farmers are not prepared to to uh, supplement their their stocks of, uh, of pigs because they're worried they're going to get the same disease. So China has a shortage of pork. And China has the spring festival coming up in a few months and a, a lot of pork is consumed in the traditional um, foods that Chinese people enjoy when they celebrate the Chinese New Year. If China did not have enough pork, if there was a shortage of pork, 
you know, historically one sees in this kind of regime, that that can lead to the people taking to the streets, hmm. you know, food riots. And that was one of the major factors that led to the collapse of the Tsarist regime in 1917. So, you know, I, while I, I, you know, one hopes that it's due to um, excellent diplomacy on the part of our new ambassador, Dominic Barton, I'm inclined to think that this is really about uh, China desperately needs pork, and and therefore their 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 hurt hurt feelings over the arrest of the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou are subordinated to the risk of the regime of not having enough of that meat at the right time. I mean, after all, with the canola canola seeds, the canola seeds are used as forage in China to feed pigs. There's a reduction in pig production. They don't need as much canola seeds. Right. And the, and so is it just natural to think that when was it just natural to think then, Charles, that once the swine fever issue is is dealt with in 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 China, that once again they will need that canola in order to fortify their their herd? Well, they can get canola from other sources more readily, but yeah, you'd hope that uh, that there that you know market principles would apply. I mean, of course, it's a global market, so if China's sourcing its canola from other places we can sell uh, canola to the other markets. You know, canola is only produced so much in the world as there are only that many canola fields. So, you know, uh, we will surely be seeking other markets while our canola is banned from China. And then if the demand increases in China, the market price will go up and and our uh, Western farmers will be happier about how much they're able to get for canola. The fact that the market's depressed uh, largely because of the crisis in Chinese agriculture with regard to to pig production means that a lot of our farmers might go out of canola into something else where they can make more money. Uh, is there any way the Canadian government can use this as leverage, or are we just lucky to be included in the in, in the market at this point? Well, you know, I mean, we could have we could have said to them, I suppose, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll only send you our pork if you release uh, Michael Colbert. That's exactly what I was thinking here. But uh, we haven't done that. I'm, I'm concerned that Mr. Barton um, may, in fact, have made concessions to the Chinese government with regard to the other issue you want to talk about today, which is the um, giving permission for the Huawei fifth-generation 5G telecommunications technology to be installed into our Bell and TELUS systems. We'll find out more about that uh, pretty soon, I should think. So how has all of this, because it wasn't that long ago, a few decades ago, the last couple of decades, everybody talked about China being the golden goose. Everybody wanted to get in. This is where the money was to be made. Uh, Everybody just assumed that China would learn from Hong Kong instead of the other way around. Now we see what's happening there. It seems as uh, they are receding back to the ways of of the old Communist Party of China. Uh, how, How much has this changed attitudes? Is China still viewed as the golden goose it once was? I mean, I think the thing is that it's clear that China's not a reliable trading partner. You know, they use economic leverage to try and fulfill their political goals. In the case of this one, the Huawei CFO is uh, detained by Canada in response to a U.S. extradition request. Uh, She could be sent to the U.S. to face some serious charges of fraud. I think the Chinese government might be concerned that if Ms. Meng is is uh, extradited United States that she might be compelled or, or desire to provide information to the U.S. government about the relationship between Huawei and Chinese security and intelligence and military agencies. And so as a result, they try and, and coerce us through uh, economic leverage and, and then this outrageous um, arrest of Kovrigan's favor without any due process of law or any any basis that Kovrigan's favor are guilty of any crimes. So from that point of view, do you want to do business with a country that may arbitrarily, for non-trade and economic reasons, um, put pressure on your on your uh, market? And that uh, you know that's a, an, an issue that that I think a lot of businesses think about, uh, and not to speak of the increasing tendency of the Chinese regime to um, obtain through coercive, covert or corrupt means uh, Canadian intellectual property or proprietary manufacturing processes 
of companies that want to do business in China or the imposition of spurious taxes or internal regulations that force the Canadian companies to give up the Chinese market in favor of their Chinese partner. I mean, these are all objective inhibitors of uh, Canadian firms going into that country, and and China has the the weight and the leverage to be able to to impose these uh, violations of international law and practice on us. And so I think more and more Canadian firms will be looking to alternative markets. And, of course, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a promising alternative to um, our current very strong dependence on the Chinese market for certain agricultural commodities and, and natural resources that we have right now. So, you know, it would make sense for us to diversify the risk as China is presenting more and more economic risk to Canadian business. Uh, the prime minister tweeted uh, that uh, yesterday that this inf- uh, tweeted this information that now uh, obviously China would be accepting Canadian beef and, and pork products. Can we talk about this as Canadians without mentioning the two Michaels? Well, you know, I I, I do believe that that we should be putting our our principles first, and that you know we shouldn't be considering uh, what sort of economic benefits can derive. Uh, to Canada from us tacitly accepting China's grotesque violations of international law and practice, and and that we should be standing up for our citizens, even if that means we take a, an economic hit, a hit. That's my uh, personal view: is that it's more important that we uh, that we stand up for for Kovrigan's favor than we're seen as tacitly giving China consent for the kind of um, violations of international law and practice that China is currently engaging in. But, um, you know, that opinion is not shared by a lot of people who feel that the main Canadian interest in relations with China is the promotion of Canadian prosperity through trade and investment, and that, you know, human rights issues, the the, um, cultural genocide program for Turkic Muslims or or the um, crackdown on on uh, peaceful protest in Hong Kong, or or China's expansion into the South China Sea, or China's support for rogue regimes in the Third World, uh, are things that we should um, see as secondary to the main point, which is that China for Canada is about Canada uh, developing our economy and diversifying our dependence on the United States. So, you know, I, I hold a different opinion from some, and I believe that within our government the the main emphasis is on is on uh, maintaining as strong an economic relationship with china as possible even if it means making compromises in uh, our commitment to canadian values and human rights and justice will any of this be resolved until until obviously the situation with the huawei cfo that is being detained in vancouver is resolved and that could take a long time could it not yeah, I mean, when when her bail conditions were set uh, by the um, Superior Court of British Columbia, the judge who gave her these very liberal conditions, and she's living in considerable comfort there and has full access to really anybody she wants um, while in, in Vancouver, was on the basis that with uh, delays and appeals on her part, that the extradition decision could be deferred for 10 years. So, wow. you know... That's a very and, and, and is there any uh, and maybe we're all too naive to 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 answer this question but uh, does anybody is anybody having the conversation well look how your Huawei CFO is being detained and look how the two Michaels are being detained uh, is there any way that can be used to at least get these two men into better conditions than what they are? We're not saying that they're being that they should be held up in a mansion uh, the way the, the the CFO is, but is that is that, can we use do we have any leverage here at all? Well, uh, not really, because you know we can't do anything reciprocal to Ms. Mung. Um, you know our legal our legal determination is independent. Right. We cannot um, subject her to torturous interrogation and sensory deprivation. No, I understand that, but from uh, from a from a from a uh, from strictly a public relations point of view, can China not see how damaging this is to their image and their 5G network in North America, and that perhaps 
something can be done to level the playing field here. I mean, I understand there's there, there's obviously different geopolitical uh, uh, systems in place here, but at, at the end of the day, how do you how do you justify this? No, I quite agree. I mean, the the moral argument doesn't seem to have much weight with the People's Republic of China. The the Chinese government's control of information inside China um, means that Chinese people who, you know, are are good people who share our our kind of values. They're not not you know people in China are not are not all uh, supporters of the repressive measures of the authoritarian one party regime. Are not aware of what's going on yeah. with Kovrikin's favor. And so we, we have, you know, obviously we have brought this up with China and suggested to them that it would be better if they behaved in a way that that is consistent with their obligations to the United Nations Human Rights Covenants and and to um, the World Trade Organization, and uh, we're not getting anywhere with it. We've even complained to the Chinese government about um, their violation of the Vienna Convention on, on Diplomatic Relations because we know that they are interrogating Mr. Kovrick about secrets that he became privy to while he was a diplomat up to 2016, and that's a gross violation of, of the most fundamental um, principles for relations between states. The Chinese government's position is that if a diplomat does anything that they deem is illegal, then the Vienna Convention does not apply. I mean, that you know that interpretation is, is a dangerous one and means that diplomats everywhere are not safe from from arbitrary uh, um, uh, actions by the Chinese government, including the diplomats who are currently stationed in China. Will any of this 5G decision-making be settled before the Huawei case? I mean, if you're talking about 10 years for that, then Huawei is probably prob- not coming into to Canada until all of that's resolved. I mean, isn't well, that a safe bet? Our government will be making a decision on Huawei 5G very soon. And, um, you know, there are various possibilities. It looks like Britain will be accepting um, Huawei technology, except in what they define as the core network, and will use their um, GCHQ, their equivalent of the U.S. NSA and right. counterpart of our communication security establishment to monitor Huawei. It appears that Canada might go the same route, but this is very much against the advice of nearly all of the security um, and intelligence uh, professionals throughout the world, that we simply cannot trust that Huawei will not be used to further Chinese regime Mm. interests by giving them leverage over infrastructure and over the ability to accumulate enormous amounts of data useful to their uh, intelligence. So... Uh, I am very concerned that that we will be making a concession to China on Huawei and that we will live to regret it in years Mm. ahead. Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Charles, as always, thank you so much much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.